G'day, and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. In episode 6 today, we're continuing the story of Ned and the Cali Gang, Victorian bushrangers from the 1870s. Last time, we saw the family taking up their selection at Eleven Mile Creek and focused on Ned's early days in Greta and his dangerous apprenticeship with a bushranger called Harry Power. After being shot at by a landholder, Ned left Power behind and made his way home again to his family to work the selection. We started seeing him being actively pursued by the police for various dubious activities. So this week, in episode 6, we'll continue on his story in Greta. Ned is 14 years old and he will soon be defending some very serious charges. But let me just mention... If you have just discovered our podcast, and this is the first episode you've come across, we are now making our way through the Kelly history in a chronological order. So you might like to listen to the earlier episodes before listening to this one. Begin at episode three, Beverage, for the beginning of Ned's family saga. Or if you'd like an overview of the entire story first, try episode two, Kelly Overview. As usual, you can find some extra material for this episode on the Australian Histories Podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and that's histories with an I-E-S. There's a contact link on that website too if you'd like to get in touch. So now let's get stuck into episode 6 where the Kelly story really starts to get serious. If you recall, Ned had been working on their selection and helping his pregnant mother since her abandonment by Bill Frost. In March of 1870, Alan gave birth to Frost's baby, and confusingly for me at least, she named her new baby daughter Alan as well. So what does this mean? Was there a shortage of girls' names in the late 1800s? Does the recycling of names just save on time? for those moments when one must go through every child's name first before arriving on the one you wish to scold in the first place. Well, no matter the name really, another little mouth to feed had arrived on the Eleven Mile Creek selection. As discussed in previous episodes, part of the government land lease agreement that Alan took up stipulated that the land must be cleared and cultivated, so there was no end of hard labour to be undertaken to meet that condition in the days before mechanisation. And of course, they needed a constant income to sustain the family and develop the holding too. They would have sold timber from the land clearing. And as mentioned earlier, Alan did a small trade in sly grog and hosting travellers at the house. But we cannot know how the family was faring financially, though we know others were often employed to assist, so some progress was being made. But in the months that followed, attracted maybe by the money or perhaps the adventure, Ned once again joined Harry Power, who'd recently returned to the area. Soon enough, one of their hold-up victims was the influential Robert McBean of the 44,000-acre Kilfira Station, 12 miles from Benalla. McBean was also a neighbour of the Kellys. Power bailed him up, took his watch and his prized mare. This just would not do. An honorary magistrate, an upstanding member of the influential Melbourne Club, a personal friend of Police Commissioner Standish, McBean was furious. 
he went straight to Melbourne to see the Commissioner and insisted the police bring Harry Power to Hill, the ineptitude of the police hunt so far being insufferable. Commissioner Standish agreed and then offered a larger £500 reward for Power's capture. This amount was close to 10 years' pay for a labourer at that time, so the expectation was high that it would tempt an acquaintance to finally inform on him. Standish sent Superintendent Hare North to coordinate the capture, and the police stayed at the McBean homestead while they formulated a plan. Though McBean appears to have been popular with many of the local squatters, and with many selectors, indeed he was a member of the Shire Council, being the Shire President three times. He had also long been interested in buying or forcing Ellen Kelly off her land, land he'd believed was rightfully his anyway. Being unsuccessful at buying her out, he seems to have used one of the tactics employed by many squatters to help drive off those marginal selectors. With the cooperation of the local authorities, he frequently had various, quote, wandering stock impounded. This meant the poorer landholders were forced to pay a fee before having their stock released, a costly business, or to forfeit the stock altogether also at great loss. So the Kellys, as near neighbours are unlikely to have been amongst those who held McBean in high esteem. As discussed in episode 5 last time, the animosity between the squatters and the selectors was a big problem for the community, harmony and policing. It was also highly class stratified, with the government in practice and appearance seemingly only interested in solving the problems of the squatters. While the law was supposed to be there for everyone, in practice it worked largely only to the advantage of those wealthy landed gentlemen. Anyway, after that risky episode with McBean, Ned again parted company from Harry Power and headed back to Eleven Mile Creek. By May, the police were certain that Ned was involved in the McBean robbery, and soon after they raided the Kelly homestead, hoping to catch both Ned and Harry hiding there. Ned was home and was immediately carted off to Benella, but the charges could not be sustained and he was released. Soon afterwards, Superintendent Nicholson then removed him to Kyneton, some 250 kilometres or 155 miles southwest of Greta, to await further similar charges there. In faraway Kyneton, Ned was separated from his family and the local support, spending a couple of weeks alone in Remand. It was thought that Ned's lengthy time in remand was deliberately engineered by Nicholson and Superintendent Hare, the two who were currently charged with tracking Harry Power down. Perhaps they hoped to isolate Ned and persuade him to lead them to Harry. But when the police could not produce any evidence to determine Ned's identity at the hold-ups, those charges were again dropped. Jones advises Ned's first police mugshot was taken during this prison stay in May of 1870. That image can be seen on the Australian Histories podcast webpage for episode 6 at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. On June 3rd, Ned was released from the Kyneton Jail, but he was temporarily housed locally while Sergeant Babington made arrangements for his return to the north. He seems to have developed a warm relationship with the kind and fatherly Babington during his stay, and indeed continued to correspond with him for a while after his return home. Around that very time, on June 5th actually, the police had set out and finally arrested Harry Power at The Rock, one of his hideouts. 
the peacock alarm at Glenmore Run failing to alert him to the activity in the King Valley below. To his great dismay, he was captured while sleeping in his lair above the Quinns, his elaborate setup with a gun in the sling unable to save him. It seems that the police were led to his hiding place by one of the Lloyd brothers, probably Jack, attracted by the huge new £500 reward, probably, but for some time there was speculation that it was Ned who'd lagged him. Ned did share some information with the Kyneton police, such as describing the tree-stump watchbox that Harry had created in the area. But he didn't disclose the location, and Ned probably told police some other information about power, like his plans to leave Australia by ship. But he claimed that he never divulged anything which could have led to Harry's capture. After Power's arrest, suspicion naturally fell on Ned, though, the timing being as it was, and rumours of his betrayal began to circulate in the northeast. Ned persistently denied any involvement, and Superintendent Hare, in a book that he published on the Kelly Pursuit in 1892, indicated that, quote, these Quins were the only people in the colony who knew where power was hidden, unquote, and that Lloyd had shopped him for the £500 blood money, leading the police party to Power's hideout. The Lloyd and the Quinn family members often lived at the Glenmore Run on and off during those years. Hare describes the following, quote, Power had sent a message to McBean. If he was anxious to get his watch, he would return it to him if he sent £15, unquote. So they set about finding a person who could get the money to him, saying, quote, It was a very delicate matter, but my brother officer, who was used to dealing with men of this kind, undertook the task. Unquote. This brother officer he referred to was probably Nicholson, though Sergeant Monford and a black tracker known as Donald was with him too at Harry's capture. The man they recruited to take the fifteen pound to Harry was named in his memoir only as Al. Not as cryptic as it could have been in the end. In encouraging Lloyd to inform on Harry, they reminded him of the £500 reward, and there is speculation that the police were willing to do a deal. Potentially serious charges were pending on another matter, and would be dropped if he cooperated. Hare explained, quote, The man threw all kinds of difficulties in the way, but we both stuck to him, till at last he gave way and consented to undertake the task, unquote. So, from initially agreeing to act as intermediary for the return of the watch, L had now agreed to take the police to Harry's hideout. Hare describes how it all took place, and that the heavy rain appears to have dulled the usual sharp senses of the guard dogs and Peacock on their approach. After L had made the exchange and retrieved the watch, they made their way to his hideout the following day. By this time, Lloyd was desperately trying to backpedal on the agreement. Apparently he was very reluctant, and indeed was crying, Hare commenting, quote, I never saw a man in such a terrible fright, unquote. After a hard night of climbing through the sodden bush, Hare describes the final moments of capture. Quote, As we approached, I saw a pair of legs sticking out beyond the shelter. I went straight up to the legs, revolver in hand, and, in less time than I can write this, seized hold of his ankles and pulled the man from under the shelter and away out of reach of his firearms. He was fast asleep and uttered a tremendous howl, like a man in a nightmare. But there he was, lying helpless at our feet. Unquote. When they searched his shelter, they found some other firearms 
and the £15 he had recently been paid for the watch, as Hare had marked the notes before sending them off. Apparently, McBean later made an application to the government to recover the £15 he'd spent getting his own watch back, as it was clearly instrumental in effecting Power's capture, but the Chief Secretary refused the request. No doubt McBean would have been happy with the outcome despite the cost to himself. Hare also noted, quote, Of L we saw nothing more. He returned to greet her as fast as he could, without, as far as we know, being seen by anyone, unquote. In carting the bushranger to Wangaratta, if they met anyone on the road, Harry would apparently call out, They have got poor power at last, but they caught him asleep. His ego knew no bounds, and with the news spreading about his capture, throngs of people left their church pews and gathered to watch the progress of the notorious bushranger, who had, in Hare's words, quote, kept the colony in such a state of excitement for so many months, unquote. No doubt, the send-off would actually delight Harry. If he's going to get captured, let's at least put on a show. Harry served his time, and he died in October 1891, an old man, having drowned in the Murray River. So again, we cannot know for certain who Hare meant by L, but Hare stated he never saw him again, but had letters from him, and, quote, paid the £500 to a gentleman he named who paid him portions of the sum as he required it, unquote. He also goes on to say, quote, It became known in the district that he had informed against power in consequence of his having so much money at his disposal. He was galloping his horse on Sunday after he had drawn the last instalment and in riding home from the hotel where he had been drinking heavily, he fell from his horse and broke his neck, unquote. Certainly, Jack Lloyd was mysteriously killed in a fall from a horse in 1877. Many historians comment that Power always believed it was Ned. But Hare, his contemporary, once again comments, quote, Power himself never suspected Al, but thought the Quins at Glenmore had given him up, as he thought it quite impossible for our party to have passed Quinn's house unobserved, unquote. Anyway, I think that all confirms Ned's version, at least, and his claims of innocence. So Ned returned to Greta, amongst great suspicion and alienation, including from some members of his own extended family, most especially from those wanting perhaps to draw attention away from themselves, probably. He wrote to Sergeant Babington soon afterwards, complaining that, quote, everyone looks on me like a black snake. Though the authorities were relieved to have Harry Power finally back in custody, the incompetence of the long police pursuit had impacted badly on the reputation of the Victoria Police and its leadership. They could not have guessed how much worse it would get in the years to come. During Ned's absence, the new police station was opened at Greta in May 1870. It was staffed by Senior Constable Edward Hall, a constable specifically selected by Nicholson and Hare, to control the Kellys and the associated lawless families in the area. Hall was an Irish Protestant with a bad reputation and a history of being, quote, hot-headed. Quite why Nicholson and Hare thought Hall would be a good candidate can only be guessed at, but if one did not care so much for the rule of law, but were keen only to get your man by fair means or foul, perhaps Hall was just the man for the job. Indeed, the placement of Hall at Greta 
occurred despite a local magistrate from a previous posting recommending his removal from the force, stating, quote, he did not have the strongest regard for adherence to the truth, unquote. As Jones points out, they had, quote, chosen a man who had shown a propensity for violence, extraordinary vindictiveness, and a readiness to lie, unquote. One can only assume they were eager for some Kelly headbanging and not very concerned about how it was to be undertaken. That his presence should serve to inflame the divide between the Kellys and their like and the Victoria Police did not seem to be a concern for Hare or Nicholson. It's hard to imagine how they saw this all ending well amongst the communities in the northeast. Hall certainly lived up to his reputation and became involved in several disputes with the Kelly family while at Greta. But Ned's first encounter with the newly posted Hall was an interesting one. During the period after Powell's arrest, when Ned was being ostracised by some of the Lloyds and Quinns, it seems probable that after his warm association with Babington in Kyneton, he might have showed a willingness to befriend the as-yet-unknown Hall, and he may have helped with the horses or the woodcutting at the police barracks on his return. After an incident in Greta where his uncles were threatening to assault him, Ned rode into the police yard for assistance. Hall sent him round the back and went with a fellow constable to subdue the drunken Quins. Charges were brought against Ned's uncles, but when it finally came to court, Ned gave evidence that Hall had originally encouraged him to stir up the Quins and to swear greater evidence against them. We have no way of confirming this, of course, one way or another, but if Ned had intended to keep good relations with Hall and the Greta police, this evidence probably brought an end to that. It would certainly have set Hall against Ned for the future. Soon, though, another more significant incident led Hall to arrest Ned himself. Benjamin Gould was a travelling hawker whose horse and cart had become stuck in the mud in October 1870 while in Greta. The horse of another local hawker, Jeremiah McCormick, was, uh, shall we say, borrowed and used to pull the bogged cart back on the road. McCormick's horse was returned to him, but he claimed it had been illegally borrowed and he confronted Gould. Now, it appears that Ned and Jack Lloyd Jr. were nearby, undertaking the honest graft of castrating calves at the time, and after the argument with McCormick, Gould took some of the no longer required, well, by the poor calves at least, gonads, which he wrapped in a parcel and gave to Ned, instructing him to deliver the parcel to McCormick's. McCormick was a former supervisor of convicts in Van Diemen's Land, and it was said he was already disliked by the Kellys. It would be a reasonable assumption that he would not have been on many Christmas card lists of the selectors and ex-convicts in the area, so he may have been seen as a fair target for a practical joke. On unwrapping the provocative parcel, a brawl broke out. Mrs McCormick had been unable to have children, and they were understandably outraged by this cruel insult. Though there was conflicting evidence about who hit who first, it is clear that both the McCormicks and Ned were enthusiastic participants in a physical melee. McCormick then reported the incident to Senior Constable Hall at Greta, and Hall claimed that Ned admitted involvement. Ned testified to extreme provocation, being assaulted himself, but he did admit to striking McCormick. Regarding the calf's testicles, he claimed he was unwilling to be involved in that joke and that he gave the parcel to one of the Lloyd boys who then gave it to Mrs McCormick. But even if true, partial complicity was enough to secure a conviction. 
the now 15-year-old Ned was convicted of, quote, sending an indecent letter to a female, unquote, and of assault, and he was jailed for six months, three months on each charge. It seems McCormick and his wife were not charged with assaulting Ned, though it was clear they exchanged blows, including Mrs McCormick smacking Ned with a stick. It wasn't simply Ned attacking them. There would have been an option to pay the surety and a fine instead of Ned serving the jail term, but the family were not able to raise the funds, which they should have been able to do had they received that huge reward for betraying Harry Power, by the way, as local rumour would have it at this time. So young Ned was carted off to Beechworth Jail to serve his time. This was to be Hall's first successful arrest of Ned Kelly. The old Beechworth Jail had been built using granite quarried from the site and was completed in 1864. Interestingly, this colonial building and many other alterations continued to operate as a Victorian state prison in one form or another until 2004. Though those alterations did not run to putting toilets in the older stone cells, the buckets were still being used there well into the 70s. 1970s, I mean. I think that being a guard there would have been a pretty unpleasant job, let alone being a prisoner. It was, however, a revolutionary building for its time, though, one of nine Victorian prisons designed on that radiating panopticon principle, allowing easy surveillance of prisoners by guards watching over a large area from a central observation point. A similar design survives at the Port Arthur Historic Precinct in Tasmania too. It was designed to, and did, in the early days at least, hold both male and female prisoners. Much of the original stone architecture still survives and it has been available for tours on and off over the years. It would be worth a visit if it's operating when you're in the area. It's associated with a lot more Gold Rush era and later history, along with the interest of the Kelly Connections. All the Kelly gang members, and a good many of their compatriots, were at various times held at Beechworth Jail. Indeed, the iron gates which are still in place today were added to strengthen the prison entrance during the time that Ned was held there before his final trial. The authorities, fearing Kelly sympathisers, might try and force their way in to rescue him. The cell where Ned stayed still survives. Its original governor, on completion, was John Castillo who later became the governor of Melbourne Jail. Public hangings were held at Beechworth until the 1870s. Various redevelopments have been considered for the site and its buildings, but I think currently its future is still uncertain to an extent. Anyway, Ned was finally released in late March 1871, with five weeks remission. But, as always, more trouble was just around the corner. Ned's six-month sentence on the assault charge was a good result for the police but Superintendent Hare wondered if Hall could stop Ned from returning to Greta and causing more trouble in the region. Riding to a dinner with the squatter McBean, Hare encouraged Hall to pursue Kelly and secure something more than a meagre six-month jail. Hall gave his word to deliver Ned into custody at his first opportunity after his release. And Hall was true to his word. In April, after only three weeks back at home, Ned met Isaiah Wright, known as Wild Wright, who had come to visit Alex Gunn, Annie's husband, now also living at the Kelly homestead. When he readied to leave in the morning, his horse was nowhere to be found, though they expected it would turn up shortly. They had a look about, but Wild was keen to get back to Mansfield on the other side of the ranges, 
so he used one of Ned's horses, saying they could swap again in several days when he brought Ned's back. Predictably, they did find Wilde's horse soon after he left, but knowing that he wouldn't be back for several days, Ned thought to use it in the meantime, as they had agreed. It was an impressive horse, described later as, quote, a chestnut mare, white-faced, dock-tail, very remarkable, branded M in a circle as plain as the hands on the town clock, unquote. And Ned had always been an admirer of good horses. Is this the 1870s version of being a muscle car fan? Anyway, enjoying his superbly pimped ride, Ned decided to take the equivalent of a brief road trip and rode the horse to Wangaratta for a few days' stay in the Star Hotel there. Showing off Wilde's beautiful horse, he even allowed the publican's daughter to ride it around town. He displayed no concern or reserve in showing the horse off in public, but sadly, what he didn't know was that this beautiful mare was not owned by Wilde Wright. Indeed, while Ned was still in prison, Wilde had borrowed the mare from the postmaster at Mansfield. Apparently he'd done this in the past with no consequence, but this time the postmaster had reported it stolen. He had not mentioned any of this to Ned, or surely Ned would have been more discreet, knowing a little about stock theft himself, perhaps. He was surely smart enough not to go riding a stolen horse through the main streets of Wangaratta. But the fine-looking horse did seem to draw the attention of the police anyway. On the following Thursday, April 20th, Hall stopped Ned at Greta on his way home, and not wanting to scare him off, told him that there was some outstanding paperwork regarding his prison release for him to sign inside the police station. While dismounting, Hall grabbed Ned and claimed he was arresting him for horse theft. They wrestled and the horse took off. Ned broke free and took off after it. With Hall on his back on the ground, he drew his revolver and called Ned to stand. And he then fired his gun directly at him. With Ned running in the opposite direction after a horse and under no threat, Hall had fired straight at him. Amazingly, the gun failed to fire. Ned now stopped, and while making his way back, Hall fired twice more, trying to shoot Ned in the head. But again, luckily for Ned, both shots failed. Ned grappled with Hall, trying to disarm him, knowing that one of the remaining three shots may well end his life. He tried to do this without striking the policeman, so that the bond sureties that his friends and family had put up for his early release would not be lost. The wrestle continued, and Hall was able to strike Ned several times on the head with the butt of his revolver. As workers nearby came to assist, Ned was then dragged to the lockup, leaving a trail of blood. With some extra constables called in for guard duty, Hall then sent for a doctor, who put nine stitches in Ned's head, for which he then charged the police eight guineas. And while I can't find a calculator that will clearly give me a modern-day value comparison on guineas, we can be sure it was a hefty bill. That great cost prompted a caution for Hall from his superiors about taking more care before, quote, recklessly causing medical expenditure the next time he breaks the head of an Irishman, unquote. I think that sentence says a lot about the attitude of the authorities. No wonder the Northeast selectors and Irish community treated the police and other authorities with such contempt. It seems that the contempt ran both directions. We know now that, even more amazingly, Hall must have made his murderous attack on Kelly on a mere suspicion of horse theft, 
As the theft of the postmaster's horse was only reported in the police gazette on April 25th, five days after Ned's arrest occurred. Hall's superiors must have become aware of this discrepancy too, but no action was taken. While one regional senior officer, named Barclay, noted his strong reservations at Hall's attempt at the murder of a suspect and the resulting assault of Kelly, his own tactics towards the Kellys were highly questionable in other ways. Barclay had been actively encouraging the local police to befriend the Kelly women, believing that through them they would get the information on the boys that they wanted. This unprofessional approach to policing and the unfortunate relationships that ensued fed very directly into the total breakdown of order between the Kelly family and police and would serve as the catalyst for what became known as the Kelly outbreak in a few short years. Of course, not everyone in the force was a Standish or a Barclay or a Hall. The author Fitzsimons quotes Inspector William Monford, who was part of the contingent who arrested Harry Power, commenting at the later Royal Commission into Police Conduct and the Kelly outbreak, saying, quote, A great deal of the difficulty with these men would be got over if they felt they were treated with equal justice, that there was no down on them. They are much more tractable if they feel they are treated with equal justice. Unquote. If only such an insight could have been shared amongst the rest of the police force and judicial service in the northeast, the Kelly outbreak may have been avoided altogether, perhaps. Ned spent the following three and a half months in Beechworth police cells before coming to trial on August 2nd, 1871. Many buildings from that era survive in Beechworth, including the courthouse and some of the police buildings and cells used at this time. The whole township of Beechworth is a well-preserved look back into that era and is highly recommended for a visit if you're a Kelly Story fan. In the end, the charge of horse-stealing was clearly unsupportable. The Beechworth jail governor testified that Ned was still in custody when the postmaster swore his mare had been taken. But, still intent on locking Ned up, the charge was amended to, quote, receiving a horse known to be stolen. While the family were not strangers to stock theft in the past, it seems clearly and entirely plausible that on this occasion Ned did not know the horse was stolen. Indeed, he was a savvy lad. He would hardly have paraded around the main streets of Wangaratta if he had known, letting the publican's daughter ride it about too. He was nonetheless found guilty, and a rather severe three-year sentence was handed down. The cause of the trouble, Wild Wright, received only 18 months for illegal use of a horse, a lesser charge even than theft. So once again, the fairness of the system, or lack of it, was on display for the common folk of the area. No doubt the judicial system, and the police at least, felt it fair, and was perhaps punishing him for all the things they could not pin on him. But not long afterwards, Hall wisely requested a transfer out of Greta, and he was moved to Geelong, west of Melbourne. Surprisingly, he did remain in the police force, and he reached the rank of sub-inspector, dying in April 1892 at Horsham, then 54 years old. Annie's husband, Alexander Gunn, who had been the one that brought Wild Wright and his stolen horse to the Kellys that fateful day, was also brought to trial in August on horse-stealing charges and was also jailed for three years. So Annie was now living with the clan at Eleven Mile Creek, missing her brother and her husband. They were never to be reunited, and Gunn died well into old age in June 1924 at Glen Innes, New South Wales, having afterwards kept far away from the Kelly clan. Back at the Eleven Mile Creek selection in September, 
Alan brought a child maintenance case against Bill Frost, and he was ordered to make payments of five shillings a week for two years and was charged more than seven pounds for costs for baby Alan's upkeep. Now, I heard a radio program on the ABC a while back about a new book uh, focusing on the poet Henry Lawson's wife, Bertha, who, after legally separating from the alcoholic and wife-beating Henry, also claimed child maintenance payments. The host and the guest author, Kerry Davies, were discussing how surprised people were to hear such legal remedies were in place at that time a time when we know very little else was in place to make the lives of abandoned or mistreated wives and children bearable and safe. While divorce was difficult, it was available if various cruelties or infidelity could be proven, and the custody and maintenance arrangements could be ordered by law. So it was good to hear that the law provided Alan with at least some little support and a win from the legal system that had seemed so set against her. And good to hear also that illegitimate children were acknowledged as requiring the same support and care as those born into unfortunate marriages at that time. But these legal remedies could not save children from the diseases of the day or the poor state of medical care and knowledge of hygiene and so on. And sadly, baby Ellen did not survive past the following January. Ned began his three-year term at Beechworth Jail as prisoner number 10926. In June 73, he was transferred to the newly built Pentridge Prison in Coburg, then just outside of Melbourne. Building started on Pentridge in 1850, and it was named after an early local squatter, Joseph Pentridge. Planners thought it siting far enough away from Melbourne to be safe to house the prisoners, but close enough to the quarries supplying Melbourne to provide work for the men doing hard labour. It was itself a formidable bluestone building, and many of the bluestone buildings in Melbourne built in that era are made from stone quarried from that site. Initially, Ned was housed in A Division, which was virtually solitary confinement. He was moved after about six weeks to B Division, where he probably lived a rather typical prison life. Certainly, he would have been involved in the work gangs, probably in the quarries. Indeed, it seems that Ned gained some valuable stone-working skills while in prison, and he worked as a stonemason for a time after his release. It's possible he may even have been attending an hour's schooling each day while he was there. The Pentridge prison chaplain was Father Charles O'Hay, the same priest who baptised him. Later in his sentence, he was moved to the Sacramento prison hulk, then moored at Point Jellybrand, Williamstown where the prisoners came ashore during the day to work in labour gangs. That old hulk was sold in 1878 and no longer survives. Prison hulks were decommissioned ships that were used as floating prisons in times of overcrowding. In Britain, these were initially intended as a temporary measure, but in practice were used for many years. They were spectacularly unhealthy places, and many prisoners did not survive their terms in these hulks. I was amazed to discover the local authorities thought it suitable to use them here, in our Australian climate. But perhaps having the prisoners disembarking daily for work gangs, and the better water quality environment at Williamstown, made them less of a dangerous place than those on the Thames. To address the huge increase in the prison population following the Victorian gold rush, the government had purchased five ships to serve as prison hulks in the 1850s and they seemed to operate on into the 1880s. Conditions on the Victorian hulks were reported as being pretty grim, though, 
and Ned was probably lucky his stay was not too prolonged. The Sacramento, moored first near Geelong and then moved to Hobson's Bay, Williamstown, served as a public prison for over two decades, being decommissioned in 1878. She was then later used as a storeship for torpedoes, before being finally broken up in the 1880s as Hobson's Bay was reclaimed. There is a Tom Roberts paintings of the Sacramento after it was repurposed in 1885. I will post a link to that on the website. After Christmas, Ned was returned to Pentridge into C Division, and with six months' remission for good behaviour, he was released on February 2nd, 1874, coming home to his mother at Eleven Mile Creek via the new train line that had just been completed through to the north. It's likely his contact with Father O'Hay while he was in prison was very helpful to Ned, as it seems he left prison with a desire to straighten out his life. Indeed, for a good period of time afterwards, he worked hard, making an honest living, and did manage to stay out of trouble. There seems to be a pattern that good influences brought out the best in Ned, and with the dreaded hindsight goggles on, it's interesting to reflect his life's course had he been able to keep away from the petty criminal activity at Greeter in the King Valley. A few weeks before his release, he was photographed again, his second prison mugshot. He was now 19 years old, looking much more severe, almost six foot tall and burly, and who wouldn't be after three years breaking rocks? That picture is also on the website if you'd like to have a look. During Ned's absence, life in the northeast continued much as before, but there'd been some sad events to note. Back home at Greeter, Constable Ernest Flood had replaced Hall at the local police station. Though many of the clan were still in jail, the police at Greeter and Glenmore continued to watch for opportunities to subdue the criminal class in the area, despite there actually being little trouble at that time. Rumours of Flood being a liar, a thief, a drunkard, amongst other things, were known to Superintendent Standish, but once again, imprudently, the police management deliberately placed such a man at Greeter. It did not take him long to make his first Kelly arrests. Jim and Dan, then 12 and 10 years old, for illegal use of a horse. The horse they used belonged to someone they knew, and they'd been allowed to use it in the past. After the boys spent two nights in the Wangaratta lockup, the magistrate dismissed the charges as ludicrous, but Flood felt he had at least made his intent clear to the troublemakers of the area. Ellen herself was a constant irritant to the authorities too. She was quite obviously regularly selling sly grog, but police had so far been unable to prosecute a charge successfully. Annie Gunn was living with her mother at the Kelly homestead, her husband also in jail. Flood, though already married with a child, possibly aware of Superintendent Barclay's earlier suggestion that the police befriend the Kelly women, had fairly obviously begun to pursue Annie. In early January 1872, Annie had to attend court in Benalla to be a witness, and Flood rode with her there and back, and soon their relationship became a matter of local gossip, with Flood boasting about his conquest. Flood was known to have paid five pounds to have a dress made especially for her, something that was totally outrageous, both of them being married to other people. Some of his superiors, such as Barclay, felt this close contact and association with one of the Kelly women would allow him all sorts of inside information, which might be useful to the police, and so largely turned a blind eye to this behaviour. 
But when the seamstress brought the scandalous matter of the dress to the attention of Superintendent Standish in Melbourne, he then ordered that Flood be cautioned for his, quote, intimacy with a notorious woman, unquote. Apparently, though, to no avail, because Annie gave birth to Flood's child in November of that year, while her husband was still in jail. Tragically, Annie died 18 hours after the birth and was buried on November 12th at 11 Mile Creek, within sight of the Kelly homestead. Her sister Maggie registered the baby's birth and Annie's death at Greta, formally recording the baby's father as Annie's husband, Alex Gunn. The Kelly women took on the care of baby Anna, but she died of diphtheria just before Christmas the following year and was also buried near her mother. There appears to have been no further action taken regarding Flood and his imprudent liaison, even after the birth of their baby and Annie's death, though police were expected to be of good character. Annie's death and burial caused Ellen to miss her expected appearance at Benalla Police Court to address Flood's most recent charge, that of receiving a stolen saddle. Even while pursuing Annie, Flood had constantly hounded the other members of the family. The magistrate dismissed the settle charge as worthless, but the bitterness that the Kellys must have by then felt towards Flood can only have hardened the family all the more towards him, and to the police in general for their self-serving behaviour. Eventually, Standish did urge Flood's transfer, commenting that, quote, he is greatly wanting of discretion and stability. But this was surely too little too late. 1873 saw the young Jim Kelly also facing a jail sentence. In April, Jim and a mate had rounded up some cattle and sold them, and the ever-vigilant flood had charged him. Jim Kelly, not yet 15, was sentenced to five years on two counts of stealing cattle. A tough sentence, but having done the deed, he was bound to serve the time. For a time, Bill Skilling was the only adult male left assisting on Ellen's selection. Skilling had been lodging with the Kellys since the spring of 1869. He had developed an interest in Maggie, and by September 1873, with the baby already on the way, they had married in Benella. Earlier the same year, Alan had also become involved with a young Californian man named George King. It's not certain when George arrived in Australia, but he probably came to try his luck in the goldfields. But with the easy pickings claimed... He seems to have turned his hand to dealing dodgy stock instead. He seems to have had great skill in rebranding, and he may have been in the Greta area to pursue a shadowy living this way. George soon settled in with the family, and before long, Alan was expecting his baby. So, in early February 1874, Ned arrived back from prison to find all these changes at home. The sadness and loss of Annie and her baby and young Jim's incarceration. But the good news was, his mother was happy with her new man, the young George King, actually not much older than Ned himself, and their two-month-old baby, little Ellen King. Boy, she really was keen on that name, wasn't she? And then the 16-year-old Maggie, having married Bill Skilling, had a baby of her own on the way. So the empty spaces in the homestead would not remain vacant for long. Both King and Skilling were assisting Alan on the land, and the family seemed happy and stable again. Well, as much as it could be anyway. Dan was now 13, Kate 10, and baby Grace was now 8 years old. 
So two weeks after Ned's return, Alan and George King married in the Methodist Church in Benalla, witnessed by Ned and Bill Skilling. Straight after the marriage, the birth of little Alan King was registered too. Looking to set himself up and get on with his life, Ned went to round up the 30 or so horses that he'd been breeding up before his arrest. But he discovered their number was now reduced to just one. Word was that Flood had been commandeering them and selling them on. The very same theft he'd been hounding the Kelly boys for. Despite Ned's understandable hatred of Flood and the frustration towards the justice system, such as it was for him, he was able to restrain himself from all but a few insulting words. Flood was finally moved out of Greta, which probably helped keep the lid on the tensions, but it seems that Flood, having been moved to Oxley, continued horse-stealing there, and a local squatter, John Brown, then petitioned for his removal from the force. According to the author, Maloney, despite at least one police report stating he was believed to have assisted with horse theft, Standish did not dismiss him, and Flood remained in the force... Such was the calibre of the Victoria Police tainted. This lack of leadership, good judgment and professionalism would be the focus of a Royal Commission in years to come, and the force was a long time rehabilitating and professionalising itself. So, the Kelly family are relatively stable for the moment. George King is fulfilling the role of patriarch, and the hated flood has been moved on. Ned has returned from prison and begins planning to make his way in the world away from Eleven Mile Creek now his mother has remarried. In the next episode, we'll look at what was to be a very healthy and productive period in Ned's life, though, as always, there will be little confrontations and issues along the way. Remember, there are some photos and reference materials noted on the Australian Histories Podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com com.au and contact details can be found there also so now enjoy picturing and pondering and i'm going to talk with you again in two weeks thanks for listening cheers <laughs>